Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Dr. Denis Rencor, scientist, social theorist, and researcher at the Ontario Civil Liberties Association. He's a former tenured professor of physics. I discovered him through social media and interviews he's been giving. His analysis and commentary is outstanding. We'll be getting his broad view on COVID-19 and the Great Reset, but more importantly, the greater underlying geopolitical picture of what is really happening because we are in the midst of absolutely tectonic uh, historic shifts, the kind that trigger once in the century world wars and depressions, uh, COVID-19 and the Great Reset are merely kind of the, you know, the marketing for the behind the scenes uh, machinations. And just a quick podcast note, please do subscribe to our free weekly email list. Find us on Telegram, Gab, MeWe, Minds, BitChute, Brighton, Float, and elsewhere. Subscribe to our YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram while we still have them. And if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We've been getting a few bad reviews from trolls at the 77th Brigade and such outfits. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rencor. How are you keeping your sanity in 2021? <laughs> I have no problem with on that side. Um, you know, I've always been an independent thinker, so I'm just being myself. And, you know, being retired, the kids are out of the house, everything. My, my life hasn't really changed that much in terms of loss of work or you know, some of the main changes are loss of mobility in terms of going to various places that I regularly would like to go to. But I'm very privileged in the sense that I've not been affected uh, very sharply. I still see and talk to my neighbors. I can get out easily and and have exercise, walk around. There's a beautiful river near where I live. So uh, personally, um, I'm doing great. Um, there's no, there's no, I mean, I feel the tension. I can see the tension in society. Um, there are there are difficult moments all around. I know people who've lost their employment and so on, uh, but I I'm personally doing very well. Yeah. Thanks. All right, all right. That, that's yeah. that's good uh, because we need people like you to continue, you know, telling us what's what's going on. So I thought <laughs> we I thought we'd start with you kind of briefly briefly giving us your take on you know COVID nineteen and by extension uh, all of the rest of the absolute nonsense of you know lockdowns, quarantines, face masks, uh, perhaps uh, vaccines. Because you know myself and probably a majority of listeners already understand uh, that a lot of this stuff is you know bogus. And for the better part of a year, we've been looking at the evidence uh, you know that, that, that proves uh, uh, a lot of these restrictions are just nonsensical so and, and and not just a joke but you know like a science fiction horror film so um, and then we, and then we can get uh, on to more deeper and profound aspects of the you know real behind the curtain geopolitical geoeconomic drivers that underlie uh, you know the great reset so uh, you know just tell us what, what's your na- analysis of COVID-19? Is it a is it a bioweapon? Is it entirely uh, a manufactured situation? And you know what do you make of all the restrictions? Right, right. Well, we'll probably come back to the motive for it as we discuss the geopolitics. But in a nutshell, um, I personally believe I've studied this at great length. I've written two large papers on all cause mortality, uh, studied as a function of time and in various jurisdictions, many European countries the various states in the United States and a detailed look at France. And I'm also writing a third large paper on this question. And what, what I find is that in terms of all-cause mortality, the if you look at the, the, the mortality is, is seasonal in the northern latitude countries, and it always has a large maximum in the winter because of these viral respiratory diseases and the, and the bacterial pneumonias that are associated with them and so on. Um, and 
this, in terms of total mortality, this hasn't not been very different from the last decade. There's no statistical significance, maybe except in the United States, where they were really vicious in terms of uh, affecting a already susceptible population in terms of economic disparity and so on. So there's been a lot of uh, maybe extra loss of life there in the U.S. But generally speaking, uh, our detailed look at Canada, France, Europe, and, and, and many of the states in the United States were, were barely affected at all in terms of all-cause mortality. More than 30 of the states didn't even register uh, a visible signal in all-cause mortality in April and in, a, in, in March and April. So um, that, that's the result of my study. So basically, uh, I have concluded that the all-cause mortality proves that the deaths have been due to the measures that were imposed and to the so-called treatments that the medical establishment has quickly raced to provide to people. Uh, everybody's just wearing their COVID glasses and there's been uh, huge social disasters that have caused death in care homes and hospitals and so on. Um, but um, yeah, so my, my take is that, let me put it this way. If there had not been a declared pandemic, and if they had not uh, ascribed this, this disease and said that it was dangerous, and if there wasn't all the propaganda, this huge, massive propaganda campaign, uh, people would not, we, the, the world would not have noticed this season as being particularly different from any other uh, increased mortality uh, in the winter uh, season. No, no statistical difference. We wouldn't have noticed. Um, but having said that, there is... There are distinct features in the all-cause mortality data as a function of day, week, or month that you can see that has allowed me to be convinced that the deaths were due to the measures. Um, you I've said this many times in many interviews in my articles. You, you may not want me to uh, repeat that, but um, basically... Um, it was the, 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 the extra deaths, the, the sudden onset of deaths was synchronous everywhere that it occurred. It, it didn't occur everywhere. It was very granular. But everywhere that it did occur, it was synchronous with the announcement of uh, the pandemic and also the recommendation that the hospitals be prepared. In other words, they seeded the care homes with infected people from hospitals. Then they locked the care homes down. Uh, exactly what you're not supposed to do. The known science is that's the way that you would get an epidemics in care homes. So you don't do that. Um, so uh, the, the, the death generally, the, the disasters are the result of criminal negligence and doing the opposite of what was known in science. Um, because it was recommended that we do these things. So, so would the you propaganda say, pushed it. Would you say then that there is not uh, a novel uh, virus? So it's just what we have every year. Uh, on top of that, this kind of like psychological torture campaign uh, by the governments right. that kind of brings our immune systems down and we're all freaking out. And so we're even more susceptible to the usual annual uh, diseases. And I mean, it was, it would it be something like that? Well, I mean, there, there, there are new mutations all the time, summer, winter, all the time. In the winter, transmissivity goes way up because aerosol particles are stable in air that has low absolute humidity. That's why you get high transmissivity in the winter in northern latitude countries. And in the winter, our summer in the southern mid-latitude, uh, southern hemisphere countries as well. This is all well known. Uh, the physics and epidemiology of high transmissivity seasons is, is well understood, uh, even though a lot of people like to forget it or 
think that there was no signs before 2020 and so on. It's all very well known. And uh, it's, it transmits through aerosol particles. You breathe them in, it affects your lungs. You get all kinds of symptoms depending that are very variable from person to person. So uh, there are always mutations, different mutations. What I have said is it could have been any of the usual varieties of viruses. And if you have these kinds of measures and you do this kind of propaganda, you would have had the same kind of disasters if you did the same thing. And every time you do these things, you're going to get the same result. Every time you, you, you scare the hell out of people, lock them in, ensure that there's transmission within care homes. Uh, in, in, you know, the science is clear. The, 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 the highest, most determining factors about whether you'll be infected with a viral respiratory disease and how sick you'll get if you are infected is first in healthy, you know, not elderly people, but in healthy people, first factor is psychological stress that the individual is subjected to or feels. Second factor is social isolation. These are rigorous scientific studies that have proven this. Um, with elderly people, of course, there's all the, the co-conditions that are very important. Um, but those are, the, those are all the factors that will cause you to be infected. The, the, the dominant factors, you can, you can almost forget everything else. The, the, you know, the, those factors pretty much determine how you're going to be, how your population is going to be affected by uh, the usual uh, seasonal viral or respiratory diseases. This is kind of like, well, I mean, what you're explaining has, has kind of been my running thesis, uh, what I personally believe uh, so far, you know, just, just a quick story, you know, years ago, uh, I'm in Mexico now, but uh, in the mild Mexican winter, myself as a healthy young man, I got uh, a serious case of pneumonia. And uh, I thought, you know, I'd sleep it off for a few days. Uh, I didn't know what it was, the flu, bronchitis, pneumonia. And after five days, I was shivering and starting to cough up blood. And, you know, then I'm like, okay, this is serious. And I went, I got antibiotics and I was quickly, you know, completely healed. So this was something that happened years ago without any COVID, me, you know, a young man, getting pneumonia and possibly being able to, to, to die from it. And so now we have this situation, as you mentioned, where there's this COVID hysteria and people around me are freaking out. Uh, you know, they're buying into the pandemic saying, look, my, my friend, my coworker, this person died, this, my cousin got COVID, you know, it's like this real thing. And so there's this kind of divide between people. And, you know, how, how do you talk to, to some of these people who are really into this COVID stuff that are saying, no, no, it's, it's, it's COVID, this person's got it? You know, well, once you've invested in it personally in terms of your beliefs and what you tell people and what you tell yourself, it's hard to get out of that. It's, it's hard to admit that you were wrong and that you wasted a lot of uh, personal time and energy on something that was completely incorrect. And so the, the barrier to come back, to wind yourself back from that is very high. And so that's a psychological barrier. And that's that's fine, but you know I'm I'm a researcher, um, and um, these are my conclusions. Um, uh, there's you know if if my neighbors are really convinced of something else, well, there's nothing I can do about that. You know, I, I look at I try to look at uh, large amounts of data. I try to look at it objectively. I read the scientific literature. I, I I look at mechanisms. I look at the the nature of the statistics and so on. I'm an expert reader of the science uh, literature. I'm an I'm I'm a high level scientist myself. I come to my conclusions, and then people do what they want. You know. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I agree with you. It's it's um, <laughs> it, when you're invested, it's it's hard to kind of oh. you say, yeah, I, I was wrong. Sorry. Let's go with uh, modify my thesis. Uh, and you know, there's something I would like to mention before continuing on, and perhaps you know you can comment on this. Uh, it's in uh, the report that 
you send me, which I'll link. Uh, I spoke last week with Italian architect Robin Monotti on COVID and the Great Reset, and he gave amazing insight and analysis. Uh, and you know, you, you are an official credentialed uh, area. Uh, you're, you're an authority, right, in, um, in the area of physics. Uh, and I'm noticing in a trend that sometimes people who have credentials from one area of expertise um, are more freely and better able to explain what's going on than people within their own domain and expertise. You know, for example, you know, the Italian architect and the Canadian physics professor can better, in a sense, explain geopolitics than some of the experts and academics that I interview from the actual field of geopolitics and political science. It seems like, you know, within each field, say geopolitics or medicine, it's like contaminated and they have this dogma and propaganda. And so experts within the field kind of have this tunnel vision where they're indoctrinated on some aspects and brainwashed and they have incorrect assumptions and worldviews. And you wrote something in your report that said, quote, uh, the Western middle and professional classes must consent by agreement or inaction to be willfully blind to what is actually going on and keep hope uh, in their politicians in the future, end quote. So, you know, could you comment on this, how some people can see the forest for the trees and, and others cannot? <laughs> well, you know, as a general rule, uh, all professional employees, whether they be scientists, uh, teachers, doctors, lawyers, judges, uh, the, 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 that class of workers, the professional employees that are supposed to uh, really adopt the ideology of the system and, and promote it and carry it, um, are, are the most indoctrinated individuals in our society, much more than uh, working class individuals and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, middle class individuals who are not professional workers. And the process of indoctrinating them is very extensive. It's university, graduate school, professional school, uh, tenure track for professors, uh, career path, uh, climbing for, for uh, other professionals, and so on. So the indoctrination, uh, Jeff Schmidt wrote a, a fantastic book explaining this in great detail. It's called Discipline Minds, his book. I mean, in, in our society, this is the indoctrination of professional workers is extraordinarily complete, I would say. So it's, it's very rare to find individuals that can step out of that, that have managed to fight their way out of it or back from it, if you like. It's a rare thing. Um, I, I have, uh, in my own, in my own uh, career, I was an interdisciplinary scientist. I had an interdisciplinary laboratory. I've written scientific papers in, in areas ranging from biogeochemistry all the way to theoretical physics, you know, everything in between, soil science, you name it. So I dealt with biota, I dealt with all kinds of things in my high-level research. I was the head of a, of a, a federally funded laboratory for a couple of decades. So I happen to be one of these individuals that has changed fields many times, and I've seen the, the false paradigms of several fields. And I've been an invited speaker at international conferences in many different areas of science. So I would typically be uh, questioning every time I would enter a new field. I would I, I I didn't understand how this could be the dominant paradigm, why everyone was saying this, and I would question and question until I got to a point where I could push back a bit and so on. So that's kind of my personal history, uh, and I've just always been rebellious, and I'm from the working class, so I I wasn't. Uh, family-wise brought into the uh, professional indoctrination system. So I don't know. Every individual story is different, but that's that's part of my story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, yeah. I see the same thing. It seems like the people, the professional class, as you call it, are miseducated. And then you talk to like the middle class, the working class people, they can see through a lot of the 
the lies that, that we're told. And it's kind of interesting to see that the difference between the people who have gone to university and those those that haven't. Well, the indoctrination is extraordinarily powerful. Uh, you're, they make it part of your identity to be of a particular profession. And your uh, advancement, your, your social status, everything depends on it. So you, you quickly um, uh, self-regulate yourself in order to have only certain thoughts and only make certain criticisms. And you, you're always learning what the bounds of that criticism are. And it's a very complete and very powerful system. Yeah. Just yeah, it's one minds. Everyone should read it. <laughs> yeah, all right. I've personally said to heck with it. I, I can't keep myself, you know, locked in anymore. I, I had trouble when I was teaching at uh, at the high school and university, and just I, I can't contain myself anymore. I, I don't care what the consequences uh, yeah. are. Yeah, that's right. Many many individuals, the the ones who are uh, forced to drop out or drop out willingly, and so on, are the ones that just can't. They just cannot give up their souls to that extent they can't they can't walk that that road yeah yeah it's right. good. and for me it's kind of a therapy doing these podcasts with people like yourself you know to to, to find people to, to to speak to because uh, the, the rest as you uh outlined they're kind of stuck in that uh frame of oh, yeah. mind um so then let's get kind of to the main course then you know so you did uh large sort of meta study back in 2019 on geopolitics, geoeconomics. Uh, I'll include the link in the description. I think it's about 79, 80 pages. I, and it's something that I really recommend that people check out. I just finished looking at it. Um, and it's. I think it's even more relevant today uh, because of what's happening with COVID and, and Great Reset. It's kind of like what you wrote is kind of like a prologue. And what we're witnessing now is kind of... Uh, Yes. You you've described. I even kind of, I even uh -huh. I even explain the role of vaccines from a geopolitical perspective in that paper uh, before before this was a thing this year. You, um, that is correct. Uh, it was a it was a major report that I wrote for in 2019 for the Ontario Civil Liberties Association, and I might just show your your viewers what the title of it looks like. Mm -hmm. It's this. Sorry, forbid the sun there. Uh, forgive the sun. Uh, so the title is Geoeconomics and Geopolitics Drive Successive Eras of Predatory Globalization and Social Engineering. And the subtitle is Historical Emergence of Climate Change, Gender Equity, and Anti-Racism as State Doctrines. So I, I explain how those state doctrines came into being in direct connection with geopolitical events. And, um, and I do the history of geopolitics from the Second World War to the present. Um, and for those of you who are going to venture the, the arduous task of reading it, I would suggest that you go straight to the conclusion and read the conclusion bullet points because that gives an excellent summary of the structure of the of this, it's almost a book, right? So if you want a, a summary, you go to the conclusion. Um, but uh, do you want me to tell the story of the history of, of globalization that, that that we're using here to to put things into context? Do you want me to launch sure. into that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was I just gonna, I was just going to say, like you know, just my thought after reading it. It seems like you know what's happening with COVID and, and Great Reset. The main themes are like you know empire, global geopolitics, uh, globalists, globalism, militarism, collapse of the economic system, you know the rise of Eurasia. So th those are some of uh, my key themes that, that I see. So uh, explain it as you like. Yes, you know. 
those things don't go away. Geopolitics is very real. Geopolitics is the macro organizational structure on the planet, and that it does not go away despite appearances, despite what you might be told in the mainstream media, despite whatever theories you might develop. This is a world that is on the largest scale ruled by geopolitics. There's no question about that. Um, and so if we look at the history of it, which I did in that paper, um, right after the Second World War, the United States, as the, as the leader of the, the Western connected, you know, free economies, if you like, decided that they were, they needed to quickly develop its, it needed to quickly develop its allies and its economic power in order to be an opposing bloc to uh, Russia and the Soviet, the Soviet bloc, basically. And in order to achieve that, it devised an absolutely brilliant uh, growth mechanism, which was called the Bretton Woods Agreement in which um, the, the US dollar became the global currency, but it was tied to gold. And you had agreements on currency exchange and you had agreements on uh, uh, trade deficits that couldn't be too high. And it, it turned out that this was structured with the help of the greatest economists of the day. And uh, the, the Western world locked into this Bretton Woods Agreement and the problem with it was that it worked too well. There was huge development of the controlled allies, Japan and Europe. They developed at an amazing pace and they were going to even, it, it was projected they were going to surpass the U.S. economy uh, under this scheme. So the U.S. decided unilaterally in 1971 to end the Bretton Woods Agreement, to detach the U.S. dollar, uh, to not lock it into the gold standard and to basically run the global currency itself, print as many of the US dollars that, that it wanted and uh, give itself the big, the big advantage that it didn't quite allow itself to have under Bretton Woods, okay? So that was the first big uh, tectonic change geopolitically was the, uh, the end of the, the unilaterally ending of the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1971. And what immediately followed was a very aggressive era of globalization. Globalization is, is, is a euphemism for, uh, you know, financial predation, basically, is what it means, okay? So they, they, they just took over the territories that they wanted with, with using as the main tool the U.S. dollar as the global currency. So they exploit, the, and this was enforced militarily, so they completely took uh, Latin America, Africa, and so on, every every part of Asia they could, and so on. And they did it in competition with their traditional allies. So they didn't allow uh, Europe and Japan to develop as fully as it was uh, projected to develop under Bretton Woods. And they really took charge. And so that was the big first modern era of globalization. And um, it was fairly aggressive. Then there was another big tectonic event. That, that, that was 1991 when the Soviet Union dissolved. It, it, it willingly uh, dissolved itself. And uh, that was the end of an era, the Soviet era, the Soviet bloc, and so on. And the U.S. decided at that point that it was going to dramatically accelerate globalization and really take advantage of this uh, weakening of uh, the ideological and economic and military bloc that was mainly limiting it in the world. And so it did. And um, it did this in conjunction with uh, um, the UN, which it controlled, put together these, these international conferences that it highly publicized in the media 
and launch the ideas of uh, environmental concerns related to global warming, uh, that there wasn't enough gender equity in the world, that all the CEOs that had to be as many women as men, that, that all the members of parliament and so on, that this was somehow uh, one of the greatest problems on earth. And also anti-racism of thought and expression became, they wanted to criminalize it. So the UN explicitly said, this is where we want to go ideologically now. And we want all your education uh, institutions and everything to gear up for the main concerns of the Western world now should be uh, gender equity, global warming, and anti-racism. And so this became the new state doctrines. And so it's a, they, they, these are sanitized doctrines that are detached from actual class uh, struggles, actual economic disparity, actual lack in, in development of the so-called developing world and so on. It, 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 it was these, these new concerns were devoid of all of that and became kind of like a state religion. And so it was a way to align the, well, the professionals, the indoctrinated professionals that ran the whole system uh, and, and educate everybody as to be concerned about those things rather than uh, identify with their class and, and uh, seek to have democratic influence. So the concern shifted from uh, having a fair democratic system for everyone in the Western world, let's say in the middle classes, to uh, that there were these external threats that, that you know, that the threat of um, um, the idea of racism, the threat of that racism was kind of like this, this, this disease that was occupying people's minds and needed to be fought and that uh, and, and gender equity and also, uh, as I said, global warming. So global warming was clearly um, fabricated from, from scratch. Uh, the, the, the science was, was toy science at the time that was suggesting these kinds of things. And it was just brought into uh, a kind of reality and they wanted everyone to wear these glasses. But if you look at the actual data, it's, it's very tenuous. If I could just like pause there, uh, you know, I, yeah. I taught a course here uh, in Mexico at the MIT of Mexico, the Monterey Institute of, of Technology. And they gave me a course in international relations, environment and international relations. And I, I, I did what an objective professor would do, you know, with one, one, we spent one session of class looking at the evidence that contradicts the official global warming narrative. And then the next session, we looked at the official uh, narrative and it was just, mind-boggling how 99% of, of the youth today at the high school and university level ha have bought into this uh, all around the world. Because I mean, I, I've taught yes. in Mexico, I teach in Kazakhstan, the secondary school students in Kazakhstan. I, I mean, they're all just repeating, repeating this stuff. And if you it, it, is, it is really shocking to see that an individual cannot detect these changes in terms of average temperature, uh, the weather being different and everything, yet they become convinced that they are detecting these changes in their own lifetime on the scale of a decade. They're, they're, individuals actually become convinced that, you know, it's, it's warmer now than it was 10 years ago and this kind of thing. It's, it's unbelievable the extent to which you can even change a person's perspective by this propaganda. And you have to realize the propaganda is not just in the media. It's not just films and media. It's institutionalized propaganda. It's right in the schools. It is science in quotations, okay? And it's taught. And so it's everywhere. And the corporation's green and everything. So my paper is, is kind of like the emergence of that. And I do, I, I look at the use of terms like global warming, climate change, and so on. 
and uh, in, in literature, in the media and so on. So I, I, I get all kinds of original data and I show how this all of a sudden emerged in exact coincidence with these international conferences and the promotion of these ideas, okay? Uh, that, and, and, and I show how it was unrelated to the fundamental science that was being done, that the science could be, you know, 10 years before, 10 years after, didn't matter. It have, you know, in terms of the, the, the societal impact of it, it's when it was uh, propagated through propaganda that it, that it became a thing, it wasn't really tied to the science. So, um, yeah, I, I, do, I do the history of that in, in, in this report. Now, um, another thing happened. So there was this big change in the ideology, but there was also big, huge economic changes. Like the U.S., after the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the U.S. went after its immediate allies, Canada and, and Mexico, and, and there was NAFTA all of a sudden. And so it negotiated these, these horrible one-sided economic lock-in deals, right? And Canada suffered greatly from it. Uh, that's something I lived through myself. I could see it. You could actually see it. Um, so as a result of those agreements, you, for the first time, had uh, homelessness in Canada, for example. There was a surge of homelessness in the, in the, in the 1980s that was a direct consequence of these, these very vicious changes and so on, and also crashes that uh, accompanied these changes. So that went full. And, and also um, in Europe, uh, the globalization had the form of uh, corporate capture. So there was a huge amount of making much bigger mega corporations and taking over uh, uh, European corporations, for example. So that, that was the, the look of post-Soviet era globalization. And in all of this, th then something else happened that was very important. In the mid-2000s, there was a shift. There was a nonlinear transformation where you went from the main uh, regulators and manipulators and operators of this so-called globalization, which was the IMF and the World Bank and so on, it shifted from being in their hands to Wall Street playing a much more important role. Okay, that was mid-2000s. And that's when Wall Street decided they were going to have way more influence. Now, it is a symbiotic relationship between these, between you know, finance and the military empire that is the U.S. Because the corporate world and, and its finance is the world that actually prevents development in Latin America and Africa, actually exploits people directly there and extracts resources, okay? So there has to be, there is, um, there is uh, you have military cooperation between the U.S. military and the military that are in place in the various countries that you want to exploit. You have puppet regimes you intervene with coups when you need to, and you have corporations that are just keeping it in a slave-like serfdom place. There is, it is completely a lie to say that the Western world wants development. It is doing the opposite, uh, and it is the corporations that do it. Um, so, for example, right after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, there was deregulation in the U.S., and uh, genetically modified crops were used everywhere with the accompanying glyphosate, uh, the main herbicide, the, the, 
the tonnage of glyphosate went through the roof and the health consequences also accompanied it directly. There's there's really good scientific articles about this. So there are many diseases that were just not prevalent before that that shot up like uh, intestinal diseases and various things like that. Asthma is another one. Uh, that, that, that these diseases are directly correlated to the amount of glyphosate being used in the particular jurisdiction. Okay. So, so uh, deregulation, uh, uh, more more determined exploitation and imposing serfdoms in these in these uh, jurisdictions that are not allowed to develop and to become independent to become sovereign to have a middle class they're not allowed any of that so that's happening and then in the mid two thousands you have this change towards Wall Street becoming and so the, the Wall Street is playing directly a role so you have to understand these people fund the NGOs which in turn uh, affect and determine the policies at the UN. And the same NGOs are the think tanks and that determine the policies in various countries, including the US. And so there's this, there's this tie between big finance and the military empire. And there, there's also struggles uh, vying for more or less power and finding a balance and so on. And that largely explains Republicans and Democrats. Uh, the, the Democrats are more tied directly to Wall Street and big finance, whereas the Democrats are more traditionally, uh, sorry, the, sorry, it's the Democrats that are tied to big finance and so on. And the Republicans are more tied to domestic industry. So the energy industry and also military manufacturing industry and so on. So traditionally they've, they've, you know, they've been keeping each other in check and, and their battles recently have become very vicious because I think because uh, uh, Wall Street has become too powerful, has become has really taken over a huge influence, and has changed is changing the rules of the game quite dramatically to the point of destabilizing the Western societies themselves. And so you get the so as a result, you get uh, this new um, geo geographic social phenomenon of the so-called uh, deplorables. The, you know, the flyover country, the, 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 the people who are not part of the professional and managerial class who are being uh, pushed down. And the responses are the gilets jaunes, the, the yellow vests in France, the Brexit movement uh, in Britain, and also uh, the Trump, Trump movement, which elected Trump as a, as a populist uh, president, right? So those are kind of like the pushbacks of that, si that class. So there is, a, there is this, these class battles going on that are very real and that are more and more apparent. And I think that um, COVID-19 played a big role in crushing uh, those populist movements. Okay, you it's it's hard to have a yellow vest uh, demonstration when you've convinced the population that they're in danger of dying from a virus, and therefore you have, in a sense, uh, uh, permitted extreme violence by the state if you're if you were to disobey. Okay, and so um, they have tested the extent to which a health pandemic can be used to uh, crush and kill. Uh, this kind of pushback from the from the uh, working and middle class. Okay, that's one of the one of the things that has played in recently here. Um, the the large uh, switch that happened in the mid two thousands is seen very visibly in in some interesting, intriguing data. For example, you can see uh, talk of global warming and uh, carbon economy 
shoot up in the mid 2000s right about the time the the the, the film by Al Gore came out uh, about uh, an inconvenient truth at the same time all the big mainstream influential media in the world their um their coverage of global warming shot up by a factor of about 5 and it became entirely positive as in believing that it was a real phenomenon and promoting it and so i think at that time the wall street uh the influential big finance decided that uh they wanted a carbon economy that that was how to get out of the problem that you had too much fossil fuel on the planet you see because the us dollar was traditionally uh, a petrodollar and traditionally based on uh the value of that resource that you control by controlling the middle east and so on but it turns out that because of technology you can extract uh fossil fuel from almost anywhere so now russia has it uh you know everybody has it canada can exploit its tar sands and so on so um there's too much of it everywhere and it, it's hard to control it it's hard to prevent the your competitors from from accessing it and benefiting from the artificial high price of it as well that you want in order to uh, maintain the US dollar uh preeminence you see so all of this kind of fits together and ex- and is explained in my in my report um the so fossil fuel is not the only commodity that is being used to prop up the US dollar that has traditionally been used the the opium trade is a big one and that explains the occupation of afghanistan it's huge afghanistan produces a, a large large overwhelming fraction of opium in the world and therefore all of its derivatives are controlled from that and you make sure that your competitors cannot benefit from that economy as well when you occupy it so um that's another example another example that that is used to prop up the US dollar is uh military protection itself it's a it's a protection racket to have military bases in the allied countries and to sell them US made armament at an exorbitantly high price that you have to purchase in US dollars and you can't purchase from anyone else. So there are all these rackets that have traditionally maintained the US dollar as a global currency, but they're all susceptible to being attacked and Eurasia is developing. It is uh it largely uh, sovereign and it has understood that it needs to stop being um uh fragilized by economic blockades and sanctions and so on so more and more they're trading outside of the dollar there there bilateral trade agreements and so on that are developing and this is kind of flipping out the the empire if you like and they're looking for uh, a way of getting around this and i think one of the schemes that they may have in mind is a, a carbon economy and an e-currency that that is tied to that carbon economy And so this is one of the models that I think they're they're hoping to to install um as we as we as we shift over here. Um I think they would like the I think they're very I think the biggest highest level pressure in the world these days is the emergence of China and Eurasia. Uh its military independence, its economic independence, its economic strength and the fact that it is developing at a high at a high rate and is surpassing 
the U.S. and the West. So that is that is really uh, a main concern for the empire right now. So that's why you have military encirclement with with uh, NATO and with you know around China the 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 sea block almost blockades and so on. Um, and also the the, the uh, economic sanctions and uh, new trade deals and forcing uh, countries to choose between trading with the Eurasian bloc or trading with the Western allied countries and so on. Really, it's really becoming very uh, very uh, competitive and very high high stress. So at one point the US believed um, after the fall of the Soviet Union that it could capture China by investment. So that's one of the ways that you degrade these sovereign nations is you create a wealthy class and you, that will be that will um, be assimilated to your own wealthy class that will find more ties and more affinities with the global wealthy class. And uh, and it has more and, and it finds more and more ways to have influence within the sovereign nation as well. So that is one of the schemes that they really like to use that they pushed really hard onto Russia, and and they tried to implement in China as well, but it has failed both in Russia and in China. And now they realize that it has failed in China, which is one of the reasons there is this new approach to China now, because they realize it's not going to work. And it hasn't worked. And it's in a sense backfired because China has continued to develop and has kept its sovereignty. And I think the reason that China and Russia are able to fight off these things is because they're extremely well organized and they're strategic in their uh, domestic policies in their uh, in the policies to protect their economy, to protect their cultures, and so on, they are very strategic, and they have a strong um, government and government ties and government uh, uh, network that is not easily corrupted. I mean, there's internal corruption of all kinds, as 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 is unavoidable in any system, but they're not corrupted by big external influences, as was attempted in the case of China and Russia recently. So that's kind of the state of the world in a nutshell right now. So, so, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, just had a question. So just to take a step back, kind of resummarize, like you've painted this uh, this history, this chrono chronological linear line from, you know, Bretton Woods uh, and then in 44 and then 71, uh, the end of Bretton Woods and this globalization process of the U.S. trying to like go for the gold, right? To go full spectrum dominance, take over the planet and then, you know, going through the 2000s and then switching to this carbon uh, based model, which now it seems like with the great reset that th they've morphed into to using this model of this kind of technocratic uh, thing where right. where it's going to be like digital currencies, you know, social credit system, surveillance and stuff. And so right. like, is this the model now that th they've okay. developed that they're going to keep going forward, attempting to globalize the world and, you know, impose right. this on Russia and China. And, and then as well, some people say that, you know, the, the Russian and Chinese elites are working with the Western uh, mm -hmm. uh, elites to kind of form this global system, but you're describing this kind of uh, division. So what would you say? Right, right. Well, you see, the thing is, nothing that you say when you simplify it, when you give the big picture is 100% true is 100% exactly simplifiable in that way. Of course, there are ties between wealthy elites in, in Russia and China and wealthy elites uh, uh, that are tied to the Western powers. Of course, there are. Of course, there are ties between 
professional medical researchers in China and professional medical researchers in other jurisdictions and collaborations and, and grants that are given for their research in China. And so, of course, there are uh, points of influence and points of uh, manipulation, if you like, and points of and so on. So all of this is happening all the time. You're trying as as an empire, you're trying to infiltrate into these blocks as much as you can by whatever means, by by investment, by uh, corruption of, of of all the elements that you can corrupt. Right. Um, so there are going to be it's going to appear like uh, it might appear. But I think the the real picture is this uh, geopolitical picture that I was that I was describing. There really is a sovereign Eurasia. There really is a sovereign China, a sovereign Russia that have their own systems, really, and that are uh, resilient to being taken over in this way. Okay, uh, I think that, that that has to be admitted. But so, so there's two things. There's the real geopolitical pressure uh, between these blocks is one pressure gauge. The other big important pressure is that as this pressure is applied, the empire is going to be less and less able to continue exploiting its traditional territories of exploitation because they're going to see opportunities to cooperate with China and Eurasia more, including Latin America and so on. And so you can see that the, the model of non-development that is proposed by the empire versus a model of of greater development and more stability that's proposed by other types of investors, there's a conflict there. You know, they're, they're, they're fighting for, for economic influence within the territories uh, of these major continents. And so there is, that's a real source of pressure for, for the empire. And therefore, the extreme wealth of the empire is going to be dialed down. The real wealth, the real, the real access to resources, the the disproportionate wealth that they have now is going to be dialed down. And they're not, they're not going to want to have that. And so ultimately, it's the middle class that's going to suffer in the, West, the Western middle class. Now, the middle class will not like that. They don't like that kind of change. And they're already pushback from it. So the other threat to the empire is the domestic threat, the domestic threat of politics and democracy. And that is a very real threat, and you need to find a solution to that. And I think that this is what they're experimenting with now. They want total surveillance. They want the ability to, to do total shutdowns. They want to, to stop having the freedom to travel, to see what it's like elsewhere, to cooperate with others, and so on, to have economic exchanges with blocks that we're opposing, and so on. They want to cut down, they want to have you know vaccine passports and be able to shut down transportation. Uh, whenever they declare a pandemic and so on, and uh, they're they're actually modifying the the the, the production uh, and transportation routes of of goods. I mean, just as a personal anecdote, I ordered something from Amazon, which is made in China, and it was supposed to come in 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 fifteen days, and it's been months and months and months. And the reason is, uh, you know, uh, the the transport route has been perturbed by COVID. There you go. Okay, so. This is, and but but there is real structural changes that are happening, and the even even uh, Western money investors are shifting from China to uh, satellite countries that they control. Okay, in terms of manufacturing, all this is happening right now in the background, uh, economic and geopolitically. But the a big threat is democracy, 
And so they need um, to know where you are, who you're speaking to, who you're close to at all times. They need to be able to peer into everything you do and everywhere you are uh, in order to prevent uh, political organization uh, and awakening and social movements and all these things. So uh, this this is just one more one more push at one more push at pushing that to an extreme, right? We need contact tracing. We need this. We need that, and so on. Um, so they like to advance these things in bounds, and I think they use these fabricated and practiced uh, uh, crises in order to advance these things in bounds to test to what extent they can get away with it, and how much people will tolerate it. And, and when will they stop tolerating it and so on? They got a lot of cooperation this time because they paid people off. I mean, all the salaried employees continued being salaried. The people who suffered are uh, small business and, and the service industry of people who have temporary jobs and who are just doing what they can. And they're the ones that are delivering all the food, uh, you know, doing all the, all the, all the work uh, right now are these people who are very in very relatively precarious positions that has to take any job that, that's given to them. And one of, one of the reasons that you uh, get transmission of viral respiratory disease is because of these same workers that are mobile, that are going from hospital to hospital, uh, care home to care home, uh, house to house, delivering food and so on. So that, that is definitely a vector of, of transmission that is unavoidable. And so as, as long as you have that happening, the real epidemiology is one where, of course, this is going to spread. The only, the only way to prevent, uh, this is kind of a side question, but the only way to prevent a viral respiratory disease from spreading is to actually isolate people in truly isolated, you know, plexiglass boxes. Either that or they have to be dead. That's the only way that this is not going to transmit. It's, th these are highly transmissible diseases. Anyway, that's an aside. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and um, so, yeah. Yeah, so I I see all of this as the elite and the empire that often cooperate that that have been in a symbiotic relationship forever, um, being a bit concerned about all these changes and not wanting democracy to emerge, and especially not in this time of higher and higher pressures that are being caused geopolitically I, because I, it's exactly those kinds of pressures that can give you social change right i yeah. I, I can't you know for me you're canadian you know we're north americans right? you're canadian I, I i'm an american u.s citizen also mexican i guess you can say mexican american and, and european and it's like I, I knew this was coming for years and decades like you, you could kind of see this developing you know back 15 20 years ago i i could see the trend of us devolving into authoritarianism but it's still just mind-blowing and shocking to be witnessing it you know i i've been seeing like in canada they've got these detention camps and i read last week a pastor's wife flew in and they just threw her in a white van and renditioned her to a undisclosed facility they wouldn't even tell her husband or family where she would be for weeks and this mm. is the kind of stuff you see like in you know totalitarian regimes it's like i don't know if people have seen amazon uh, the man in the high castle right where you know north america gets taken over by the nazi germans and japanese and it's starting to really feel like this and it's just kind of hard to wrap your your head around well, one, this one thing that we should understand is that in all of these geopolitical realities something is always happening and that is that there is a steady 
almost uninterrupted march towards totalitarianism. That is almost the nature of these systems. Um, I, I reviewed a theoretical physics paper about that, about, about, about the structure of society and how it evolves and so on in, in one of my recent uh, podcasts with, with uh, Tanya, the herbalist. But anyway, y- y- th- it is clear that uh, we're having more and more totalitarianism, less and less freedom of expression, less and less uh, occasion to influence society, occasion to have politics and to have democracy and so on. It's clear. And I saw it throughout my life as, as a university student, then a university professor, and then a you know professional and so on. It was really shocking to me to see one of the clear signs of totalitarianism is when people lose the ability to think, lose the ability to reason for themselves, to be independent. And I saw that uh, being done to students, university students. So when I started teaching many, many decades ago, uh, students had their own mind. I mean, they, they were, were fresh out of the of the Berkeley free speech movement and, and students were wild and you, you could barely control them. And they would tell you to your face as a professor uh, that, that, you know, your lecture was boring uh, today or, and that, you know, this was not going to be very useful. And so, and you, you had these real discussions with students when I started teaching um, because they had demands and they were on the committees and everything. And then gradually um, in Ontario, they eliminated one year of high school. The students were younger they eliminated the preparation time for high school teachers. So the, the high school became this, this, this assembly line, uh, deliver the curriculum without thought and no living and no professional independence of the teachers. And the end product, when the students arrived at university, they were just uh, completely frightened and indoctrinated. They didn't know they were frightened, but they would, uh, we went from students on the first day of class challenging me in what I wanted to do in the course to students on the first day of class asking me if, even though I'd set out all the homework and everything, could I give them more homework? <laughs> yeah. Could we? Is there is there more that I can do that you can suggest? I mean, it just it just blew my it would blow my mind to see the evolution of students and how obedient they became, and how just just all they wanted was a professional job and and they they couldn't think outside of that and they just wanted to obey 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 in order to have the best chance of having that job so i witnessed it you know and i've written about it um it was frightening it was frightening to see that world emerge that this totalitarianism emerge and it was largely due to uh what happened after 1991 all of this indoctrination, you know, words that wound and critical race theory and all of this stuff, all of these, these, these bad theories corrupting everything, everything about academia, everything about thought, everything everywhere. And it became like the only thing you had to eliminate uh, even any traces of racism from a person's mind that you could detect from anything they might say. You had to fight it. You had to have zero tolerance. Uh, it was. It just became this obscene war against against self and against the, your neighbor and against uh, your colleagues and against everybody. You know. Um, so it, yeah, this is pretty nasty stuff. What has been happening? Yeah, and and so how do you then, you know, so Biden became president, uh, and so you know, looking forward, how do you see things with this in in the U.S. For example, with the Biden. Uh, administration and it really seems right now 
we've got the great reset going on. So are they going to like continue grinding down the West and establishing this like, you know, vaccine passports, uh, technocratic social credit system here in the West uh, under Biden? But also at the same time, we see it's, it's like they're going for the gold because you're really seeing them accelerate regime change attempts in, in Belarus, in Russia right now. Uh, it's insane. Um, even in Kazakhstan, I was in Kazakhstan and I had met with Kazakh security, you know, because they're always like, who's this foreigner with three passports, right? My, myself. And so like, they're checking me out, but I'm telling them, I, I actually came across some of my students who were working with a local NGO in Kazakhstan that was sponsored by the usual Western, you know, uh, regime change apparatus. And I wanted to tell them like, hey, you know, my 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 country, my empire is here trying to overthrow your, your government. Like, that's not cool. And I don't think that's a cool thing. And I read this week that Kazakhstan finally suspended some NGOs, you know, some human rights uh, NGOs in yeah. Kazakhstan. Yeah. So it well, seems like that. Yeah. And so they're finally like get, get, getting it, getting the idea. So but meanwhile, the empire is kind of like we got Biden, we got the Great Reset grinding us down and then they're trying to accelerate uh, regime change. Cool. And so do you see like a world war scenario, do, uh, you know, total economic uh, collapse? What do you see going uh, forward? I, I'm very concerned. Um, I, I share concerns that were recently expressed by Putin himself at uh, the Davos summit just days ago. And he spelled out in a speech of more than an hour. I mean, he, he he's he's a brilliant analyst and he's really trying to get a message across. And he's appealing to people's intelligence and their common sense. Uh, now, Putin is a very smart man. I don't think I, I need to prove that point. But so he does not challenge the, the battles he's not going to be able to win. For example, he'll, he'll, he'll accept the notion that there's global warming. You know, he'll, he'll accept that. Uh, except in the sense he'll say that, yes, of course. And he'll accept this notion that you need vaccines. You need to vaccinate everybody. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll say, yes, of course. Because the propaganda instrument of the West is so powerful that it, it, it is able to convince uh, the populations in, in, in other uh, competing blocks. So he'll go along with that, but then he says what he really needs to say, which is really important. He says, listen, you are, you are degrading the middle class. You are uh, frittering away the, the very structure of democracy and of society, and that is causing huge instabilities. And you're also at the same time uh, degrading the instruments where we've been resolving military militarized conflicts in the world and they're propping up there there's there's now a chance that they can prop up more and more and we don't have effective ways to agree on not doing this and resolving it and coming in and resolving it, it the opposite is happening so he's very concerned about that he explained how he believes russia is more stable and what his domestic policies are to stabilize Russia, to uh, increase the, the welfare of the middle class and, and uh, you know, all his plan. And he lays it out and he says, you're going in the wrong direction, guys. You know, this is getting more and more dangerous now. And I agree. I think there's, it's almost like the West is looking for war and it does not want to be challenged by the working class when it decides to go to war. And because it, it and, and there are going to be economic repercussions and it's the working class that's going to suffer. They're making this into a serfdom, really, the, the useless class they want, you know, and only the managerial and professional classes are going to survive this in their model. And, um, and part of it is going to be these, these huge wars that can get pretty hot uh, 
in various parts of the world. And I think they're, they're constantly testing uh, Russia and China and, um, you know, testing to what extent they can infringe a little more, a little more, always more. Uh, and also testing constantly being very aggressive in the Middle East. You know, Russia does not need a Syria that is taken over by terrorists because that would be horrendously dangerous for its own sovereignty because those terrorists get imported into Russia and, and, they, and they wreak havoc. So uh, Russia put its foot down in Syria uh, when Obama was there and Obama just had to give way because Russia made it clear that there is no way this is going to happen right now. And, but, but the empire is constantly pushing, pushing and pushing and they're playing the long game. And so it's a very dangerous world. It's a very dangerous world. You know, what this propaganda instrument that can convince us that we're mortally in danger of a virus, an invisible virus, that is just some freaking flu. Um, um, they can use that same instrument to convince us that we need to go to war in a big way, that there's a real war effort that need, that everyone needs to contribute to now because the, the entire humanity is threatened by these crazy Eurasian bloc people that don't want to pay their carbon credits and therefore they're putting all of humanity at risk or whatever, you know? I mean, you can, you can almost any, no scenario is too ridiculous. Now, now we know that no scenario is too ridiculous. They can get the, the, the middle classes and, and the professional classes in the West to believe anything, anything, anything is it's, possible now. It's unbelievable. It, I mean, it's, we, it's we're really up, unbelievable. We're up anything to four, goes. four masks and anal yeah, swab. Tests. Four masks. Let's go. Um, you need to have the vaccine, even though we haven't tested for its efficiency. We haven't tested if it's dangerous with elderly people. Everyone needs to get it, especially elderly people. Um, and, and, uh, we don't know if it's going to work. It's not going to prevent transmission. It's not going to prevent you from getting COVID and we're going to keep testing for COVID and we're only going to test for COVID and our test is designed only to detect COVID and let's go and you, and just whatever you want, they'll just, they'll just lap it up. They'll argue with their neighbors that this is true. And they'll, they'll, uh, attack you in the grocery store. If, if you appear to look sideways and maybe not, maybe think that this is a bit ridiculous, you know, um, yeah, they can get you to believe anything now. I just had a so, quick, so, so that's a dangerous world. That's a dangerous world. Just a quick question on the test that you mentioned. Uh, I've I've found you know uh, mainstream articles describing how you know China has its social credit system, you know reputation, Sesame Credit, uh, technocratic system, and that they were using uh, pretext of public health to get Chinese citizens to take these. Uh, blood tests uh, to capture their DNA for, for registry for this system. I mean, wh what do you think is the purpose of these constant PCR or COVID tests? Do you think it's something similar in the West to get like register well, or, or DNA I, or get us used to this? Or, or... Well, I think that I think the COVID testing is, is uh, part of the propaganda. It's propaganda by testing, if you like. Okay. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind. I mean, it's a completely bogus test. It's been disproved scientifically, uh, completely disproved. I've written about that. Um, so I think, I think that the whole testing is just part of the scam. Uh, you know, it's scientific, therefore it must be true kind of thing, right? Um, but it is also true that um, these NGOs and various people, they like to collect blood samples in Russia and China and in, in many places. And I think that they always have an eye towards uh, biological warfare. They always have an eye. 
I, th I think there's little doubt now that they were able to induce cancer in leaders in Latin America. You know, I think that the, statistically it's just not likely that the, all those deaths uh, were, were accidents of, of, of revolutionary leaders, you know. Um, so I think they're always developing those techniques. And a lot of them, a lot of these techniques rely on genetic vulnerabilities of populations. So they, they, like, to, they like to collect data. I don't think we're there yet. I, I think it's it's a futuristic kind of uh, weapons, but um, they have all kinds of campaigns for collecting data. Uh, so they're not just collecting your your the data from your phone and your conversations and everything. They're also collecting biological samples everywhere they can. No doubt about it. I mean, the Genome Project was not just to give us better medicine. It, it's also to uh, learn about uh, genetic vulnerabilities, genetic distinctions, and so on. All right. Uh, I, I guess I have my, my my last question, and then we'll kind of wind down. But, you know, uh, a lot of us have to deal with uh, uh, censorship. You've pointed out uh, in previous interviews that, you know, they usually won't take down material or accounts until something or someone cross, crosses a certain a threshold of popularity uh, on a controversial uh, topic. You know, I had that happen to me when I touched on uh, COVID-19 and bioweapons, and then, then it got really popular and then they took down the, that one, uh, video, or we've had channels that have gotten big and then they've been deplatformed. And so, you know, what do we, how do we, you and I deal with, uh, in, in the free speech democratic West, how, uh, you know, how do we free thinkers now navigate this minefield of, of censorship? And, and in general, you know, what do we do now? You know, how, how do we, how do individuals respond to, to all of this? Uh, well, I don't know, uh, but I, and, and, and I don't know how far they're going to go. They're going very far. They're going very far. They're, they're developing their methods of censorship is what they're doing. And they're, and they're trying many things out and they've even recently taken Trump off Twitter. I mean, it's just mind blowing how far they're, they're going. Um, so they are exploring what they can get away with, what methods they can use that will not cause us to be so disgusted that we just dump social media that they propose and look for alternatives, whatever those alternatives might be. There's like these, these breaking points where people just snap, you know, and they've had enough. Uh, there is a very a highly respected intellectual on Twitter that I, I'm not going to name the person, but that, that, that I followed and that is just so brilliant and so uh, clever. And as soon as they took Trump out, uh, she said, okay, that's it for me. I'm out of here. I'll see you on this other social media, but I'm not, I'm not coming back here. And she had a huge following and everything. She just closed down and went away. And so there is like, there, these are nonlinear reactions. These are nonlinear processes. You know, I don't know, but people who want to, as long as there's a memory of freedom and there's a memory of the hurt you just were subjected to because you lost your freedom. You know, uh, once you get into the second and third generations, it's 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 over for a long time. You, you, but there is that period when you still have the memory of what you had that you've lost, and where that causes you some stress that you want to get out of this. And so there are these windows, and they are exercising how to shut those windows, how to shut us down, how to and 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 developing methods for that. So. 
I have no idea. I couldn't predict how it's going to go, but there are so many ways to communicate. I mean, if we have to go back to using our printers at home and, and give out flyers, you know, ultimately we could. And, you know, the thing about social media is it's, it's very superficial. Whereas if you're actually meeting someone and, you, and, and people are actually reading something complicated that they want to understand because it's important to them, those are much deeper connections. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how, how important social media is important as long as you're controlling people by those superficial means. But once people become not controllable by, see, that's a, that's a thing. And I'm going to end this way. Maybe when we try to think about society and how to change society, we often make a mistake. And that is to think in terms of the average we think in terms of the average person and how the average person is going to react and what the average person will do and what will happen. And we think of this average person. But the thing is, society is granular and there are all kinds of different networks and personalities out there. And they all react differently and they have different connections between themselves, different degrees of influence with different groups of people and so on. It's very complex. So when you, when you make a video it's not necessarily that it'll be viral in terms of getting millions of views that matters. It's who will see it and how will they respond to it. And that group can be fairly small, but it's connected to other things and it has a lasting influence on them when they get a certain information or the, a certain perspective or, and so on. So it's very hard to predict the, uh, it's almost impossible to predict the, the kind of the impact of what we do. These are nonlinear processes. And even with all their artificial intel intelligence and all their analysis and all their megadata, they also have a very hard time actually predicting how things are going to go. They fail all the time at it. So it's complex. And that's what we have to remember is that it's complex. So my advice tends to be, um, be true to yourself, get out there and try to have influence, test what you can see who you have influence on, see how much influence you have, how convincing you can be, how good your arguments are, test them out, respond, listen, learn, and push, and push, and push. So I tend to tell people, just, just, just keep, keep going at it. You know, things, and then things happen when they're unpredictable. And when they happen, recognize them and figure out how you can contribute to them mm -hmm. in, yeah. in a way that, that, that pushes things a little further, you know? Yeah, I, I feel the same way. And uh, that's why I keep doing what I, I'm doing. And you keep doing what, what you're doing. And, you know, you get uh, emails and responses that kind of uh, tell you you're in the right direction and, and you keep going despite of all the, the, the obstacles. Uh, so I, I think, well, you know, you know the, the, the biggest the biggest influence that I've had on people, I, I'm, I'm sure of this, the biggest influence that I've had on people, I don't know about it. They didn't tell me. They didn't give me feedback. Sometimes I learned five years later, 10 years later. People will tell me something. They said, I heard you talk at this, in this venue at this year, and it changed my life. And I started doing this, and now I'm doing this, you know? Uh, it, you don't know. Yeah. All right. Um, um, you are on Twitter for now, Telegram. Uh, you opened a, recently a Telegram channel and, and um, perhaps some other channels. Where, where's the best place to, to keep tabs on you? Uh, it's still Twitter for me. I, I, I mean, I hate it. I feel like I'm in 
uh, someone's house that I don't like, you know, and, uh, but I'm still there. I mean, I have a lot of followers. There's, it's a good way. I get a lot of good information from there and there's a lot of influential people also on Twitter and a lot of uh, really authentic people that want to follow you and that are exchanging things. So I'm still on Twitter. Um, yeah. I mean, Google my name. I'm in various places and people, you know, all kinds of podcasts and everything. I do have a blog. It's called activist teacher, uh, dot Um, so, and, and I put a few things up there every once in a while and I'm on ResearchGate. That's where my scientific articles mostly are when they don't deplatform them, which they have done twice now, but I've got, I've got a lot of stuff up there. Yeah. All right, cool. I'll put all the links uh, in the description. So again, uh, Dr. Rencourt, thanks. D don't back down. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, we need more people like you cutting through the crap and telling it like it is. I like some of your tweets uh, that you put out there. So thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. It was my pleasure, and I promise I will not back down. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.